Well, what a joy to be together this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to John 3, where we just read from. If you're with us for the first time today, such a joy to have you with us. I'd invite you to take that uh, envelope in front of you and just jot down a way that I can connect with you. I won't harass you or anything. Just want to follow up with you, see about your visit here today, find out how I can pray for you and engage with you in any way that you'll let us. Just encourage you along the way. While you're turning to John chapter number three, I want to remind you, you can also follow along with the notes on the church app. You just go to gracecovenant.com slash app. You can download the app there and the notes are loaded in there for you. What do you think is the most important thing about you? We all get asked those. It sounds like an icebreaker question at a small group, doesn't it? Like, if you could be a meatball, what? No, none of that. But what do you think is the mark? Likens loves icebreakers. What do you think is the most important thing about you? Now, some of you are struggling in this moment to think of your character traits or your abilities or your strengths or um, just the good things in your life because you're so humble. I get that. I appreciate that. Reminds me of my uh, good friend who was at his church service one Sunday. The pastor's up preaching and he says, there's no such thing as a spiritual person that's not a prayerful person. He said, let's just do a quick example. He said, I want you, and he said this in the church gathering, church of about probably 800 people seated that morning. He said, I want everybody in this room to think of the most spiritual person they can think of. My buddy's telling me the story, and he says, Chad, in that moment, I had never been so embarrassed in all my life. And I'm like, embarrassed? Did you not know anybody? He said, no, just to think that everyone there was thinking of me. He said, so the sermon was not about humility. No, it's not, not that. But seriously, if you're thinking about yourself and, and you would describe one of the greatest strengths or an important thing about you, I wonder if you think that your view of God is important. What, what comes to your mind when you think of God? Now, now, let me just clarify this for a moment. What you think about God has no bearing on who God is. He's not looking for your permission to exist or your box to fill. That's not how he works. This is his world. The earth is his footstool, and we are the sheep of his pasture. But what you think about God matters. In fact, um, it, it absolutely matters who you are spiritually before the Lord. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Years ago, Time Magazine, that ought to date it for you, Time Magazine, but they asked a lot of people that question about what they think about God and who they pictured when God came to mind. And this was their common response. They pictured this old, unhappy, white-bearded father figure in the sky who gets angry at us. Is that what you think of when you think of God? A.W. Tozer recorded it this way, and he lays the weight out here. He said, what comes into your minds when we think about God is one of the most important things about us. You will worship God based on what you think about God. Now you must say, oh, Pastor Chad, I appreciate you saying that, but we will worship God based on the truth of God's word. No, you won't, because I've seen the way you look at folks that lift their hands. You think that's charismatic. It's not. It's biblical. 
I've seen the way you look when people uh, linger just a bit in this vein or that vein. It's biblical. I've seen the way some of you look at certain instruments. It's biblical. I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about your view of God affects the way that you worship. And some of you have a very small view of a God that's not revealed in Scripture. I've been there. Some of us have a very skewed view of God based on one attribute that we focus on so much and we hang on true, and it's a true attribute of God. It is who He is, but it's not all that He is. The God of this Bible, revealed in the Old Testament and New Testament like, I want to tell you something, is a God of incredible, bigger-than-life love. Now, some of you are nervous, shifting in your seat. Some of you with uh, conservative credentials are wondering, oh, is this one of those mamby-pamby sermons, just going to focus on the tiptoeing through the tulips, love of God? No, no, no. You know me. If you've been with me five minutes, you you should know me better than that. But, But I'm afraid that even though that's been abused and misused and mispreached, sometimes it's avoided for the sake of sounding doctrinally sound and hammering on the wrath of God. Listen, i got to tell you something. Jesus showed up because we were already in trouble. Jesus showed up as a revelation of God's love for us. And that's the text this morning. Before the cross, before the incarnation, God's people were still singing about God's love. The Old Testament God still loved in a way that the people responded I'd like to read an extended passage of Scripture for you. Then I'll give you the sermon title. But it's only got two points, and it doesn't have hardly any sub-points, I promise. In Psalm 103, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. I'm going to read it from my Bible. I know I told you to turn to John 3, and that's fine. You stay there. That's cool. If you want to follow along, you can. But in Psalm 103, I want to read verses 1 through 14. I want you to hear this song from the Old Testament about this incredible, loving God. Psalm 103, it starts in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Take a breath for just a minute. You ought to thank God for that. He does not deal with us. He does not deal with Chad according to Chad's sins. You know how I know? Because I have a pulse today. (laughs) He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to those who fear Him, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers 
that we are dust. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, but I want you to see something. It's not just wrath and, and fire and brimstone in the Old Testament. It is said love, that, that Hebrew word that means that never stopping, unceasing, always chasing after us kind of love. And in the Old Testament, they were singing songs about the love of God. They were singing songs about a God who, who didn't hold them, who wouldn't pour out His wrath immediately when they sinned, but a God of great mercy, of steadfast love and faithfulness. The Israelites sang of this, and boy, you talk about a glass dimly. They couldn't even really figure out the incarnation, certainly couldn't reconcile a suffering Savior on a cross. And yet they sang. They sang. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death of God's precious Son on the cross for our sins is one of the highest and greatest expressions of love the world has ever known. I want to look at this very familiar passage this morning, right? I mean, you think, Pastor Chad, how long will you preach John 3.16? I mean, it's John 3.16. Surely you're just going to read it and sit down. Well... Y'all know me better than that. Here we go. Remember, John is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee among Pharisees. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a man of great integrity that is influencing all the rest. But he stands face to face with Jesus and he stands, I'm going to prove this to you, condemned and in the dark. The first Point, the header that I would give you, we sang it just a minute ago, is love so amazing, the sermon title, love so amazing and so divine. That's our title for our text this morning. Point one is the first couple of verses, God's generous love. You'll notice something on the screen and probably think it's a typo. It's not, I assure you. I've got John three fourteen there. I'm wondering if some of my... Uh, fact checkers are looking going Pastor Chad you're just about to meet with me make a note to me but you had the wrong scripture up. I'll get there in a minute let's look at John 3 16 on the screen together and I want to ask you a question I'm not here to do a grammar lesson with you this morning but it's one of the most famous verses of all time right that almost everybody knows it's so familiar sometimes we can lose its meaning because it's so familiar here's my question what's the first word in John 3.16. Let's say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. Four. Well, what's the four for? What's the four for? Right? Your kid walks around saying that the house, you're going to go like, go watch TV. You're talking funny. I don't know what you tell her. What's the four for, Mom? What's the four for? Is that a new show? No. The four. You see, I've met people that say, all I need is John 3.16. But if you look at John 3.16, John 3.16 tells you all you need is not John 3.16, but at least John 3. Probably all of John. And it might give you a wink to do good to maybe read the whole thing once in a while. Yeah? The four is there to connect it to what is before. Think about how we ended last week. 
our time in God's Word. If you were with us last week, it's, it's not a heavy lifting that we need to do. It's just to say that this great, amazing, loving God knew that humanity would reject Him. They knew that human- He knew that humanity would reject His rule and His love and His absolute truth. So God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back with me. It's, it's just in your Bible. It's not on the screen. Verses 14 and 15. The Bible says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, just a Bible study note here. If you're going to start the thought, you would start it in verse 9, or at least in verse 1. You with me? So that's the whole complete thought to pick up the four. But I want to give you what's right before it, so you can see that Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, has just invoked this image of Moses and the serpents from the Old Testament. Right? And the salvation that came through that. And now Jesus is saying the Son of Man is here. For God so loved the world that He has sent the Son of Man. God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like the people in Moses' day rebelled against God, people in Nicodemus' day rebelling against God. People today, shocker, are rebelling against God. They were condemned because of their rebellion. Just a side note here for some ears in the room, that word condemned, we were reading through this last night, and Ashley, my wife, wisely looks at me and says, Daddy, why don't you unpack the word condemned? There's a sentence you don't think you'd hear much at home, but there you go. Uh, Why don't you unpack the word condemned? It means that this vengeful judgment, right, that God has come, and that word condemned, talking about this, he's come to exact revenge or to declare judgment in its finality, right? There are other words that describe that, but for small ears, let's go with that, okay? God has come to bring condemnation with him. And the scripture says that's not what happened. Condemnation was already here. We stood condemned. God shined the light on that. Now, let me get back to my text here. So we're, we're back with Moses and the serpents. And they were given a way of salvation from certain death. They had rebelled against God. They had rebelled against God's leader that God had set up over them. And they were bitten with venomous snakes. And then Moses, remember, constructed this bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, and everyone who looked to that pole would be healed in that moment. Their look in that pole was a look of faith. It was acknowledging that they had sinned and that they needed salvation. And if they did that, they would be delivered. Out of that context, Jesus said, the Son of Man has to be lifted up. Now, I came up in a certain, uh, I don't know what you'd say, lane of Christianity, and when we saw that text, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me, it always meant in worship. If we lift Jesus up, He'll draw men to Him. If we lift Jesus up high, He's so attractive because of who He is, And what he's done is great love. Even unbelievers will be drawn in through our worship, exalting Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. There's some credibility to that, but that's not all that this means. In fact, that's actually the lesser part of what this means. Because in context, Jesus is saying, I must be lifted up as a sacrifice. I want you to process that. He's drawing Nicodemus to himself. Nicodemus, this leader of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. But Nicodemus is a man who needs a savior. Jesus will be lifted up on the cross, paying the sin debt of Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Paying the sin debt 
of all the disciples that would be with him, paying the sin debt of you, me, and those that would come after us. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God on a Roman instrument of torture so that those who would repent and trust Him as Savior could experience and be washed over in the great love of God. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross higher than the criminals who were guilty on His left and on His right. Jesus would be lifted up above the on the cross so that He was clearly in view of those scoffers around Him and those that would look with eyes of faith. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross as a reminder of the judgment that was coming to those who were already condemned if they wouldn't look and believe. Jesus must be lifted up. Why, though? Why all of this? Why would Jesus have to do this? John 3.16 For God so loved. It's not my summary this morning, but I love it. And I want to just point to those words for a moment. If you'll put John 3.16 up, let me just highlight a few things. God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree. The world, that's the greatest assembly of people possible. That he gave, that's the greatest act history has ever recorded. His only son, the greatest gift. That whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simple invitation. In him, the greatest attraction. Shall not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So we transition from this God's generous love that He has expressed to mankind. Look with me at verses 17 and 18 quickly this morning. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, that whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Recently, in a debacle of international proportions, <laughs> I don't know how I can say it bigger than that, this pastor from the other side of the world and a couple of years ago was recorded in the news when um, the, um, let's just say the alphabet soup came knocking on the church door. I don't know how else to say it, right? So, and they wanted to say, listen, you can't say that. You gotta say this. And this pastor took it upon himself to, I think, try to put on the hat of politician because there's no way he left his pastor hat on saying what he said. He said, listen, I'm not going to speak out against anything because Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. He didn't condemn anybody. The Bible even says that. And then he says, the Bible says none of us are condemned because of Jesus. <laughs> um, no, that's not what that means. Yes, those words are there, but... What's the Bible saying? Listen, you all are intelligent and beautiful people. You can see this right in front of our eyes. 
Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation with him. That's true. He didn't do that. That's, that's what the text says. But the fact that he showed up, that he needed to come when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son because we needed a savior. We were condemned already because we were believing in ourselves, our own way. The world already stands condemned. And that points us to the second point of our text this morning. You ready? Very simple. Our great need. Our great need. That word condemned, declared guilty, avenging, judged as guilty. Our great need in verse 17, it's right there. You can look in your Bible if you want to. But in verse 17, we needed a savior. In verse 18, we stand condemned in our unbelief. We, we stand in the dark. Look at verse 19 with me, please. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I, don't, I do write in several Bibles that I read from. I've got a Bible I read from every day in our uh, devotional reading for our church plan and our discipleship groups. I, I, I write like a boss of that. I got all kinds of writings and marks. And, and, and I just go for it. In my preaching Bible, I'm very sparing with my writing because I don't want my attention drawn to something that like I'm going, wait, can I do that for y'all? Or I don't, right? I don't want to do that. So when I underline something, it usually stands the test of time. And that's what I have underlined. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This was in Jesus' day. This was back then, right? This is in the sweet little scenes of all the depictions of what we see going on. No, no, no. The world has had its foot on the pedal toward wickedness and darkness since the day. Go. And it rejects the light. We stand in the darkness. Our wickedness and our rebellion is proof that we are in the darkness. You, you may think you've got your life all figured out. Hear me online this morning. Hear me in the pew this morning. If you've wandered in here seemingly like just, I, I guess I'll settle here today. Or, or maybe you've attended Grace Covenant for years but, but you've not been born again. Hear me, you may think you've got your life all figured out, but if you are not born from above, if you have not been radically transformed from the inside out by Christ himself, you are walking around in darkness. You, you can't see to put one foot in front of the other in a way that will lead you to eternal life. It's not possible. You don't know what's up. You don't know what's down. You don't know your left from your right, you might think you are heading in a direction only to discover you are heading down. Darkness, you are condemned, but I've got news for you. You need a savior, but I've got hope for you. You are not without hope because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You are not without hope this morning. You are not without hope this morning. You are not without hope this morning because there is a Savior who loves your soul more than you can even fathom. How deep and how great the Father's love for us. This rebellious world of God's image bearers the Bible says God so loved the world. Think about what that means. A world full of idolaters, God loved. 
Full of God-haters, God loves the world. Full of fools, God so loved the fools. He so loved the idolaters. He so loved the condemned. He so loved those clamoring around in the darkness. He so loved that He sent His only Son. The Bible says, John writing later in an epistle in 1 John 5, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life, praise God. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Recently in an evangelistic encounter, I was sharing the gospel with a family member not long ago. And we came to this point about, do you know that you have a right relationship with God and this Dear loved one responded, I'm not sure anybody can know that. Well, what do you do with that, brother or sister in Christ? When they say, how how can anybody know that? What do you do with that? Well, I went right back to the scripture with him. I said, do you know John 3.16? Yeah, of course I do, right? Well, let's, let's say it together. And we did. A little awkward, but he said it with me. I'm not sure what version he quoted or if he'd ever actually memorized it, but he was close. We said it together. I said, you know, the same guy, of course, God's the author, but God used human instruments too. But the same man that God used to write that in Scripture also wrote, these things were written so that you might know that you have eternal life. This is not some hope so, think so, maybe so salvation. No, because it is tethered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would rather die than leave you in the dark. Jesus would rather endure the suffering and shame and reproach and the humiliation of hanging naked on a cross, barely recognizable as a human man because the Bible says he was scarred beyond the visage of man. He had been beaten almost quite literally to a pulp and yet he would rather endure that than to have you in the dark. Jesus would rather have his father turn his back on him. By the way, when that happened, the whole earth went dark. He would rather endure that for a moment so that you could step into the light for eternity, so that you could be transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of His marvelous light and life. There is no greater need that you have today than your need of the Lord Jesus Christ to transform you from the inside out. Brother, sister in Christ, the gospel is not just for us to get our ticket punched, to get out of hell and into church. There's no greater need that we have than to confront ourselves every day with this great God who so generously lavished His love on us and then say, Lord, here's my life. Spend me. Spend me today for Your glory. There's no greater need. There's no greater love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. No greater need, no greater love, and there is no other way than through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is face to face with Jesus and Nicodemus is already condemned, whether he realizes it or not. 
Jesus makes it very clear that those that love darkness and love wickedness are not children of His. They're not children of life. And in the midst of this incredible acknowledgement of reality, Jesus calls Nicodemus to life. What is eternal life? Is it streets of gold and gates of pearl? Is that eternal life? Let me tell you what the Bible says eternal life is. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they know that you, Father, you, Father, are the God. The only God. The wise God. The immeasurable God, the worthy God, the holy God, and that Christ is the only hope that we have. Eternal life is this, Jesus Christ and knowing the Father. Andre Crouch wrote a song years ago. It said, if heaven never was promised to me, neither God's promise to live eternally. It's been worth just having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he brought me the light. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that this morning? Or are you banking on religion? It's not enough to know John 3.16. You need the rest of the story. Jesus came to save sinners. We stand already condemned if we do not know Him. The difference between perishing and living in John 3.16, the difference between condemnation and salvation in John 3.17-19 is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, we read that Nicodemus would actually come to the light. In this moment, he might have been in the dark night of confusion, but later he would step into the bright light of confession when he saw Jesus high and lifted up. And said, this is the Son of God. What about you this morning? Are you fading into the darkness? Are you walking in the light? Are you heading down with the condemned? Or are you living as the redeemed? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let's say so this week. Let's tell everybody who will listen about this incredibly generous God who loves with great love. Loves all humanity. Sent His Son to die in place for anyone who would trust and believe. Let's tell anyone who will listen about this great need that we all have in our present state. Let's tell anyone that will listen that they don't have to wander around in darkness. They can come into the light. We've sung some wonderful songs this morning, rich in meaning. I want to give you a few lines of a recent one written by the Gettys that fit this so well, called Magnificent, Marvelous, Matchless Love. Just a few lines from it. Hear this. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, too vast and astounding to tell, forever existing in worlds above, now offered and given to all. Sufficient and endlessly generous, magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. Greater love has no man than this, the Bible says, than someone lay down his life for his friends. But God committed His love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
The Lord would speak through Jeremiah the prophet and say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Ephesians 2 tells us that God is rich in mercy and great in love. Love so amazing, so divine. What's your view of God this morning? I hope it lines up with Scripture. I hope it lines up with the truth of who He is. This God extended His magnificent, marvelous, matchless love to a fallen world of condemned sinners. Where are you this morning? Maybe you have a great need this morning. And you've caught a glimpse of the light of the good news this morning. I want to invite you to come to the light. Step out of the darkness. Come to Jesus this morning. Repent of your sin and trust Christ as your Savior. Follow Him today. Be made new from above. Brother or sister in Christ, here's a second invitation for you while Julia moves the piano this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes today just to remind you of the generous love of God. Maybe you needed assurance. I hope you got it from God's Word this morning. But I hope that as you're thinking about that friend or loved one, who is wandering around in the darkness, may not even realize their great need for this great God. I hope that you recognize you were saved to be sent. The gospel came to you on the way to them. We weren't called to be spiritual sponges that stink up a church building, soaking up everything we could as consumers. God wants to take you by His mercy, and ring you out for His glory. Love so amazing, so divine. He came to seek and to save them too. Let's pray. Fathers, we've sung your praises this morning and declared that you are God and lavished our love on you to the best of our ability today. Lord, we recognize that when we think about your generous love and our great need and humanity's great need, the temptation is to think, well, what can I do? I'm just one person. But Lord, we were reached by one. Somebody prayed for us. Somebody opened their mouth and shared the good news of the gospel with us. Somebody lived their life in such a way that we took note that they were heading upstream in a culture heading down. 
Father, we ask by your grace and your mercy this morning that we would be that people. Lord, when we're tempted to lean in and seek first our own provisions, God, we we don't want to dishonor you in that way. We want to trust you instead. When we're tempted to lean into our own power, God, and manipulate others around us, Lord, we we want to repent of that and say, God, we want your way. When we're tempted to, to, to move in such a way that we're trying to be safe and protected and never take any risk for the sake of your kingdom, God, we... We want to repent of that and say your love is worth more. And our need cries out for desperate efforts in prayer. We thank you this morning for the grace and mercy that we only find in you. And we pray that you would ravage our hearts this week and turn our prayerlessness into prayerfulness, God. The only way we can serve this world effectively and serve one another in a way that glorifies you is if we are serving from our knees, washing one another's feet in humility while with our face down to you. Use us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.